0: what's up everybody my name is Jordan I'm one of the pastors here uh, before we get started in today's message I want to pray for us uh, so Heavenly Father Lord you know exactly what we have come into to this place today with on our minds you know the, the the people who've been beating themselves up you know the people who are calloused you know the hypocrites you know the religious people you know the people who are afraid you know us all and Lord you welcome us to your table so, Father, today, I pray that we would eat a full meal prepared by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, growing up in New York in the 90s was uh, a time where people were always getting robbed for their eight-ball jackets, uh, for their Abarexes, for their jeans, their Carl Kani jeans. Y'all don't know nothing about no Carl K'nai jeans. Um, and certainly, people were getting robbed for their sneakers and for their chains, Now, I was uh, not the toughest or the biggest kid growing up, but I always had a chain. And I remember when I was in high school, I was waiting tables at a catering hall, and I was stacking my checks every single week. And as soon as I had enough money, I hopped on a train to Fordham Road and bought me a nice cuban link chain. Uh, Now, I was always afraid and always cautious about getting robbed because, you know, this was the 90s, everybody was, I had to keep your head on a swivel. And I always thought that if I were ever to get robbed, it would be like on Friday with Debo coming through. You know what I'm saying? That it would just be painfully obvious that what was happening was going down. But the one time of my life when I almost got robbed, I actually had no idea what was going on. Now, I was a little naive, but I was at a gas station filling up the car, and this older, bigger guy came up to me and he was like, "Yo, that's my cousin's chain." I was like, Wow, like what a coincidence that your cousin would also have this chain. <laughs> no, 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 I, I bought this on Fordham, this is, this is my chain. So cousin has good taste, but no, this one is mine. <laughs> he started getting angrier and he was walking closer. I was like, this guy is really serious about his cousin's chain. Uh, and he's walking, he's like, yo, nah, stop playing bro. Like that's my cousin's chain. And he was walking up to me like he was about to take it. And I was thinking like, is this his cousin's chain? Like did I? <laughs> maybe, I don't know. And out of the corner of my eye, I actually saw who he was with. And we happened to be friends. We played basketball together. And I looked over like, yo, get your man, please, because he's about to rob me. Um, And that story always sticks out to me. Fortunately, I walked away with my chain. Uh, That story always sticks out to me because, like, that guy was a really good thief. Like, he was so good of a thief that he had me really rethinking, like, is this his cousin's chain that I didn't even know that I was being robbed. Now, in a lot of ways, you and I are getting robbed every single day. Not of a chain or a Cuban link or a herringbone, but something much more valuable of that. The life-transforming, life-altering power of the gospel. There's a lot of definitions of what the gospel is. If I were to pass a microphone around in this room, I'd probably get hundreds of different responses on what you think it is. But we're being robbed of its beauty and of its power every single day. Now, there's a a man named Tertullian. He was an African church father in uh, 240 AD. And here's what he said. He says, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. Essentially, what he is saying is that there are two errors that destroy the power of the gospel and rob us of its power in our lives. Now, these two thieves, they're so good that they'll rob you, and you don't even know that you're being robbed. One of these thieves is moralism. Moralism says that you have to be good to be saved. Moralism, a good definition of it would be that your faith plus good behavior equals a right standing with God. That if you really believe and if you do the right thing, then God will accept you and God will embrace you. If you and I think the standard for being loved by God is meeting obligations, you and I will be robbed of, its, of the gospel, the true gospel and its life-transforming power in our life. Now, a couple of things about moralism. Moralism is something that makes us believe, either personally or socially, that the better we do, the more we're accepted. So religious people tend to focus in on personal ethics. Growing up at Shiloh Baptist Church, it was don't smoke, don't have sex with people you're not married to, don't drink, don't curse. If you do these things, God will accept you. But moralism is not just for religious people. It's also for people who would not consider themselves to be religious. Those who would not consider themselves to be religious tend to be more in the social ethics category. So how do you vote? Your views on climate change, your impact on the environment, all these different things. And if you wanna see a bunch of self-righteous, moralist people, you can see that inside the church or outside. A couple weeks ago, I was on Twitter, uh, doom scrolling, which is my favorite hobby. And um, I, was, I was really like blown away and like I was so sad, I was so miserable. I, I was reading a thread about this guy in Texas who was, he was leading an anti-mask rally and he died of coronavirus, he died of COVID and people were like laughing at him and his wife and the jokes that were happening in this thread over a man, a father who just died. I was so disheartened and saddened now, I am pro-mask, that's why everybody's wearing a mask, I'm very pro-vaccine, I'm all these different things, but the, the level of venom and anger and moralism in a non-religious crowd was astounding. So you don't have to be a religious person to be a moralist. You can believe that your life, you matter more than other people because of how you behave, whether or not you're in the church or outside of the church. None of us gets a pass at this. But at the root of moralism is, I play a part in my salvation. I play a part in how good I am or how much I am accepted by God. Now, another thing about moralism is moralists are always miserable. And this is, this is the truth because, and this is where I tend to land, moralists, you'll, you'll be always miserable because if you believe that you're standing with God, the infinite, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, if you're standing with God depends on keeping standards, you'll always be miserable. Think about it like this. Can you think of one week, one seven day period in life where you have met all of your standards? Not even God's standards, just yours, where you hit a thousand. If you couldn't do that with your standards for a week, think about a lifetime compared to God's standards. That if we are moralists, if the gospel is just, you need to do a better job, then we're always gonna be miserable. We're never gonna feel invited and loved and welcomed at the table of God. Now. Another thief of the gospel is something called relativism. Relativism is something that says um, that my faith, that I am accepted with God, I'm justified by God, and it doesn't matter what I do. That I am accepted and justified with God no matter what I do. Now, one of the challenges with uh, relativism is that it fails to acknowledge something really big in the gospel, One of the truths about teachings in scripture is that God is never opposed to your effort, but God is opposed to earning. God is never opposed to you trying hard to live a life that is worthy of the gospel that pleases him, but he is absolutely uh, opposed to us feeling like that earns us a place as his daughters or as his sons. You know, my family now is starting to, you know, as my oldest son is six; he's starting to get older, we're starting to develop Rice family rules and different things that I want him to do, to be a man that I could say, man, you are a rice man, Uh, a number of things about what it means to be a servant that we all pitch in around the house to help each other, what it means to be a Knicks fan and not root for the Nets. (laughs) I'm failing at that because we actually sent him to Nets camp and he has a Nets basketball bag and he loves it. So pray for me, please. Uh, We got a lot of discipleship to do. Um, But I can... Find a kid right now, a Renaissance kids, bring him home and read him the ten rules that we have as rice for, for, the, for the rice household. That kid can obey all ten, and they 're not my son. Rules can never make you a child of God, but relativists tend to downplay the importance of rules altogether and believe that God is all love, and it doesn 't matter what I do, and you know what that 's just like a really difficult thing to believe because if you believe that God doesn't care what anybody does, then what you're saying is I don't want a God of justice. I don't want a God of judgment. And none of us want a God like that. A few weeks ago, we told a story about uh, a hero of mine, Fannie Lou Hamer. And Fannie Lou Hamer is a true hero. Uh, she She literally risked her life and her safety in ways that armchair activists like me could never even think about. Fannie Lou Hamer was the real deal, and she tells a story about one day she was arrested and abused physically, and I think sexually as well, and she left the police precinct, looked at the cop who abused her, and said, have you ever thought about what it will be like to stand in front of God on the day of judgment? What she believed, and what all of us believe, is that God will never turn a blind eye to sin. Now, here's the problem. We got no problem with God judging them. We do have a problem with God judging us. Yeah. But none of us really, if we were to play it out, none of us wants a God who does not believe or that it will not right the wrongs in this world. Uh, we certainly want a God of, of judgment, of justice, a God that will make things right. So, moralism on one hand gets, robs us of, of joy for sure, and relativism robs us of a holy and real God that we can come to in all. Now, What is the gospel? If it's not moralism and if it's not relativism that God loves us no matter what, then then what is it? The gospel is not a mixture of both things, a little dab of this and a little dab of this. It is a completely different category altogether. And I want to look at one of my favorite scriptures, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And that's going to show us a lot about what the gospel is and why it is good news. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and it shows us the first thing that makes the gospel good news is that we have a real need. We have a real need. Now, as we'll see in Ephesians 2, the, the gospel is referred to, or God's grace is referred to as a gift. But all of us have received gifts that we don't need or, know, or want. That shirt on Christmas, you're like, whoa, all right. Yeah. You shouldn't have. <laughs> you, really, you really shouldn't have. But the gospel is not talking about a need like that. Here's what it talks about in uh, verses 1 through 3. It says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Now, admittedly, this scripture starts off with a little bit of a punch a lot of bit of a punch, and it says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And modern people read this text, and we recoil at it for a couple of reasons. I think we push back because we think of it in in the sense of that this is saying you are as bad as you can possibly be. And this is not about good or bad. There's no different degrees of dead. It's like either you are dead or you are alive. When the scripture says that we are dead in sins, it's talking about we were completely and utterly unable. Think about it. It doesn't say we were sick in sin and that we needed Dr. Jesus to come and heal us. If we were sick, then there's something we can do. There's our own agency that we participate in our own healing. Now, I went to a doctor a couple of weeks ago. Um, Shout out to my primary care physician, Dr. Shante Henson from Juno Care. Yes, if you need a doctor... Juno.care, they are amazing, right here on 124th and 8th. And uh, I went to the doctor for my annual checkup. Please make sure y'all get your checkups. And everything was good, praise God, except, you know what I'm saying, my cholesterol is a little high. Now, Dr. Henson told me something. She said, you're going to need to lower your red meat and your fried foods. I was like, why live if I can't have this? I mean, just shoot me, doc, please, what are we doing? So. When I post my Korean fried chicken binges on Instagram, I hide her from the stories <laughs> so I can eat them in peace now. No, but my goal, honestly, I asked my wife, my goal is to be a healthier person. And if I want to lower my cholesterol and have a long, healthy life, I need to take her wisdom into the heart. But here's the thing, I can choose to do it or not do it, right? She's an amazing doctor, has all of these... Uh, degrees, and all these different things, I can choose, you can choose to follow your doctor's advice or not. If you get better because of something you do, it's because you decided to have the surgery, you did the physical therapy, you, ate, you changed your diet and got some more lentils, you know what I'm saying? You did all these different things. If we were just sick, then it would be saying you play a part in what God wants to do in your life. It says you are dead. Dead people don't need advice. Dead people don't need a better plan. Dead people need a power from outside of them to raise them to life. And the first aspect of the gospel that we need to reconcile with and to really pay attention to is that we have a need that we are completely unable on our own, completely unable on our own to do anything about. Now, Jesus says the same thing just in cuter ways. Jesus says, I am the shepherd, you are the sheep. And we, you know, there's paintings about Jesus, our shepherd. We read the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It sounds beautiful and it's heartwarming, all these different things. But what Jesus is saying by calling you a sheep is he is saying by yourself, you are defenseless. You cannot uh, find food for yourself. You'll just graze in the same pasture. And eventually all of the sheep will die because they'll just be eating in the same place and eventually eating all of their own feces. They have to be moved from place to place. By Jesus saying we are our sheep, he's saying left to your own, you're going to die quickly. Wolves will come in and your teeth, you have no defense mechanism. There's a way that sheep die by just falling on their back and they cannot roll over. So they'll just die on their back. What is Jesus saying by calling us his sheep? By him saying he's our shepherd. He's saying left to your own, you are completely and utterly unable. The first aspect of the gospel that we need to reconcile and reckon with is that our condition is not that we are morally inconsistent people. That's far too optimistic a picture. We are dead people in life of a need. In, we are dead people in need of a life of God. God, in His grace and His mercy, gives us life. But this is a real and profound need that we had. Now here's why this make, makes so much sense and how this matters so much to so many different people. One of the biggest barriers that people have to getting baptized in general that I've seen at Renaissance, I've seen this over the last seven years, is they think they're not good enough. They think that they can participate in their life, in their, in their walk, and we have a baptism coming up next Sunday, and so many times the objection I get is, you know what, I just, I just don't know, man. Like, I believe in Jesus, but I, I'm, I'm just not ready for this, this and this. Now, on one end, you do need to take baptism very seriously, but on the other end, what are you saying when you say you're not good enough? You're saying, Jesus, I trust that you can raise me from death to life, but the rest is on me? Paul says this in Galatians, you foolish Galatians, has what has begun in the spirit, do you now wish to continue that in the flesh? Do you now wish to take what God has done, can do, and will do in your life and and complete this on your own? First aspect is we have a real need and we are completely unable on our own to do anything about it. Now, for those of you who may be interested in baptism, please see me or Pastor Brandon or Pastor Left after service. We would love to talk to you about that process for next week. Now, number two, what makes the gospel good news, right? So, so far, it's sounding a little, little rough. Like, all right, that doesn't sound too good that, I have a, uh, that I'm dead in sin and trespasses. What makes the gospel good news is the giver. So, number one, we have a need, but number two, there's an amazing giver. Verse four uh, is a, a verse that theologians have written thousands of pages about. You can write thousands of pages it's about these next two words, but God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. Here's what the author does here in this text. He's turning our attention from ourselves to a great God who is rich in mercy. A couple of years ago, I was watching one of these shows on Showtime, these all access shows, you know, these shows where they show like the behind the scenes of these boxers, and this one boxer was getting ready for a fight in Vegas, and this dude had a night where he said he was gonna go out and spend $1 million in cash. And this dude had like, somebody come with duffel bags and duffel bags, and these were like all 20s, and he had all these big diesel security guards walking around the Vegas strip with a $1 million in bags, and he would go into stores and just be buying, like he was with his whole entourage, and he would see like a bag that's like $20,000, and he would ask like, his secretary, like, hey, you like that bag? Leopard, whatever? Yeah, get two, it was like $20,000. And yo, I could not turn this show off. I was like fascinated, like, yo, this is crazy. And I kept on thinking two things. One, I was like, bro, a million dollars in cash? You could've got a million reward points if you used your... <laughs> if you use your black card, which I know you have, you could've got mad reward points and been balling, you know what I'm saying? Free upgrades, all of that. But that's another conversation. But the reason I couldn't turn away was because I kept on thinking like, yo, I don't have a category in my brain for how rich people live. Like to spend a million dollars, I was so uncomfortable the whole time watching him just spend money like that. Like if you gave me a million dollars right now, I could spend that first thousand quick. But after that, I'm gonna start just feeling uncomfortable, like, yo, I mean, how much can you, like why would you just buy five bags that all look the same? At some point, it's like, bro, a million dollars in a night? And here's here's what hit me. It's impossible for me to fathom how the super rich live because I am a broke boy. I don't understand how they get down. (laughs) I cannot fathom it because I have never touched hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know what that's like. To go out and do that and then wake up the next morning and have eggs benedict for breakfast here's the thing what scripture writer tells us when he says that god is rich in mercy he's saying so many times we cheapen god's grace and we bring it down to our category of what we can understand but you are not rich in mercy you are a broke boy or a broke girl when it comes to being uh god when it comes to real mercy and grace you don't have it like that here's what the scripture says scripture says That Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Meaning, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. You want to know how rich in mercy Jesus is? There's a story in scripture right before Jesus was about to be crucified. And it says that he wrapped a towel around his waist and he started to wash his disciples' feet. One of those disciples is a man, Judas, who was about to betray him in a matter of hours. Jesus bends down and washes the feet of the man who's about to betray him. Do you have a category in your brain of doing something like that? On the way to the cross, Jesus is walking, he has already been beaten, and now he's being punched in the face and spit on. His response is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That man is rich in mercy. Don't ever lower God's grace, God's mercy down to the place where you can understand it and fathom it. Scripture says that he is rich in mercy, meaning that you and I don't have the category or the ability to comprehend the immeasurable riches that God pours out to us in Christ Jesus. And God does this because of his great love. Not because of your great track record. Not because of your great Bible reading plan. Not because of the great prayer you just prayed. Not because of a great sermon you might have preached. Not because of anything, but because of his great love. God is rich, and he is great. One of the things that I'm learning now in my walk with God is God's holiness. I, I used to think that holiness was something that meant that God was like untouchable, which to a certain extent, God is untouchable. Holiness in its very nature means that God is just different. There is not a category that you can merge God into that you also belong into. God is different. His grace is different. His mercy is different. His wisdom is different. You can never understand that in your own mind. And what I hope that we recover in understanding what the gospel is, is that though I have a great need, I have a greater Savior. But God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love that he had for us. So the gospel is good news because we do have a real need, and we have an amazing giver. It's also good news because of the gift that he has given us. Verses 4 through 10, it says this, but God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, here's what God does. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable, cannot measure riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And check this out. This is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. And again, not from works, so that nobody can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, the author here, Paul, talks about four things that God does to us and for us. And a little bit of what Paul is doing here is going back and a play on words of what he did earlier in the chapter It says that he made us alive in Christ and raised us up with him. So instead of being dead in our sins, it says he made us alive and raised us up with him. It also says that he seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Now in ancient language, in ancient Semitic language, what they would have understood that to mean is not just having a seat next to somebody. They would have understood that in a sense of belonging. So who you sat with was who you belonged to. So when it says that we are seated with Christ, seated with him, it means that we belong with Christ and we belong to him. You know, one of the biggest controversies in the Old, uh, sorry, the New Testament church was this matter of circumcision, and there's this big controversy that happened where a man named Paul, uh, the author of this text, goes and confronts and rebukes a guy named Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, because of what? Because Peter wasn't sitting with the Gentiles anymore. And just the very act that Peter wasn't sitting with the Gentiles anymore was a theological statement and declaration that they don't belong, we don't belong to the same God. We don't belong to the same faith. So this, to say that we are seated with him is to say that we belong to God, that he belongs to us. We are his. We are the people of his pasture, that he is not afraid or ashamed to be associated with us. So number one, it's, he's saying we are made alive. We're raised up with him. We're seated with Christ. We belong to him. And also, we are created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, the gospel doesn't just stay in your head as a theological truth. It works its way out into your life that it does eventually change your behavior. So it's not that your behavior doesn't matter. It's saying that God, in his wisdom, in his infinite nature, God, as as his workmanship, he created us for good works, which God prepared, prepared ahead of time for us to do. What does that mean? It means that what God has for you is more than just sitting down listening to me. And what God has for you is more than attending and sitting down in your, in your own circle that God has prepared works for you to do. And what the enemy wants to do in your life is to distract you, is to discourage you, and to take you off of assignment in your life. That you don't have an assignment, you don't really matter, you're not that important. Look at you, I mean, look at, look at how inconsistent you are in your life. He's trying to undo what God has done and it has prepared for you to do in your life. One of my hopes for us as a church is that we would continue and start to see the ways in which God has gifted us, passioned us, burdened us to walk in the ways that God has called us to walk in so that we wouldn't get caught up in other things and we would see what is it that God wants us to do. And it's a whole lot more than being a passive listener in in our life. Now, the good news is also that, although these are theological truths, if you're like me, this stuff doesn't just happen overnight. Right? The process of sanctification, the process of us growing in the gospel, is a process something that happens, not overnight, not over years. It happens over a lifetime of us learning to embrace our true need in a real way, so that we would not rely on ourselves. It also, so that we would see ourselves in relationship to the great giver. And we would see the way that God has truly liberated us and seated us with him. And the more we grow in this gospel, over time, we will be liberated people. We will start to look more and more like Jesus. You know, one of the biggest things that robs people of a life with God is shame. A few weeks ago, our sister Amber Field preached on shame and did a phenomenal job. And I was sitting there thinking, so convicted, of how much shame has robbed me of prayer. And sometimes I just come to God in prayer and I'm like, yo, (sighs) yes God, okay, I didn't really pray like I wanted to. Yesterday I got caught up Um, and I just start off just so, I feel like my lack of prayer makes me a bad person and that since I'm a bad person, God doesn't want nothing to do with me. So at least let me just like start it off by like with a million apologies up front in the prayer, that I'm not living like a real liberated person at times because I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not believing that he's rich. I'm not believing that he really does have enough mercy to cover me. I'm really not believing that he has great love for me that pre-existed me doing anything right. Scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. And I think in my own life, as I'm wrestling through shame and not being defined by what I do, but by by who he says I am, as I'm day by day growing in the gospel, I'm being liberated from believing the lie that I am what I do, but now that I am who he says I am, and that's enough. Other times in, in, in our lives, there's relationships that are just so wrecked by unforgiveness, marriages that are so petty where there's a list of you did this, I'll do this, where there's no forgiveness that's going to happen in in our friendships and our different relationships, we're so quick to cut people off, we're so quick to label people. Why is that? We're moralists. We believe that your value in life depends on how good you are doing. What if we got the gospel deeper in our hearts that says that I'm a forgiven person and I can give this forgiveness away. I got forgiven not because of how good I am, but because of how good he is. And that same liberating forgiveness could also forgive someone else who, who has harmed me. Now, forgiveness is a long conversation that we can have. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Reconciliation requires two people working together. Forgiveness requires you releasing the debt that you think they owe you. Other times, there's so many people in in our church who are struggling with unfulfilled desires. Here's the narrative in your head that because I don't have the job, the apartment, the money in the bank account, the relationship that I want, you know what it is? is? God is out to get me. This is God paying me back. And as a result, it makes life's challenges unbearable because we feel like this is divine cruelty paying us back for not doing a good job at whatever scenario. But the gospel says that God, although we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, it paints a different picture that yes, there may be reasons that God is withholding from you lovingly the job, the relationship, the whatever that we have in our life as a true desire, a good desire in many cases. But the reason that God is not giving it, it's not because he's petty and he's trying to pay you back. There has to be a different reason than that. God in his infinite goodness towards us, he's not tit for tat trying to pay us back. The gospel tells us he's a much different being than that. Now, in our life, I hope and pray that the gospel would fuel Everything we do and everything we look at, the way we give our money and our time and our energy to different things, being fueled by our real need, being met by an amazing giver who has given us a permanent gift. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would today deposit something in our hearts and our minds about your gospel. I pray that we would see it not just as the ABCs, as an introduction, but as the A to Z of everything in life, that it permeates our entire walk with you. And every single morning, every single day, we are day by day being renewed by this truth for our lives, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and it would make us new. Lord, would you deepen our understanding of you? Would you allow your words of yourself to replace our thoughts of you? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.